the Black Scholars Podcast. BlackScholarsPublishing.com That uh, we should get our own. Once we have our own, uh, we're respected for the fact that we can create our own. And uh, that's equality right there. My anxiety tends to be triggered by dealing with stresses. I had like a sort of a burning stomach ache and I was getting really, really nervous about it. Our doctor, she prescribed an antacid. That was a Monday. Wednesday night, we went to the ER because I had this different pain. And then Sunday, I got this idea that I had cancer. It started with a brain tumor or like osteosarcoma or leukemia or something. Um, And so that was terrifying. And then we went back to the pediatrician and she ordered some blood tests, I think, like blood count, like red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, amylase and lipase for the pancreas, and then hemoglobin A1C for uh, blood sugar, and that would be um, diabetes, I think, celiac, thyroid, liver, gallbladder, and abdominal scan for tumors, cysts. I had a few other like minor panic attacks, but nothing this bad. As does the psychiatrist said, it was just like everything kind of like building up until it built up to this, and this was the point that just pushed me over the edge. All right. As we break down episode eight, titled Nobody Can Hold You Down, we start off with a discussion on anxiety. As a student, how many of you guys have suffered from anxiety of some form? It doesn't necessarily mean that you are suffering from uh, an anxiety attack at all, Um, because that certainly could actually be the case. Me personally, I've never actually had an anxiety attack, but... That pressure that you feel when you're expected to be great and you're expected to produce and you're expected to be top notch despite the fact you might be going through something personally, you might be juggling multiple responsibilities. I've literally dealt with that my entire life. To be candid with you guys, I do feel like there are certain individuals that God has designed and, you know, thanks to nature and nurture, 
who have been built to deal with a lot. And for the most part, that's me. But at times, even I need an escape. That's why last year, before the coronavirus, for fall break, I never go anywhere for fall break. I had my mind set on going out to California. And that was my first time out in California. I went to San Diego and I had an absolute blast. And I wouldn't trade that experience for anything in the world. I had an absolute blast. Sometimes you've just got to say enough is enough. It's okay to say no. At my previous school district, at my previous school, I was doing a lot. I was doing a lot. I was learning coach for two years. I was the uh, apex gifted English teacher, which meant that technically I was a special education teacher again and a general education teacher. So I was expected to do all of the things I was supposed to do as a case manager because many of my gifted students had an IEP. So that meant I had to put together the meetings and the paperwork and the addendums and I had to do all of that. The paperwork and the the data collection uh, connected to that was a lot. On top of being a gifted English teacher. And I'm using gifted as a double entendre there. And I am a gifted student. I went to a gifted and talented middle school. So I know the pressure that our kids feel. So as an educator... What are you guys doing to help alleviate some of the pressure that our students feel? And we have those students. We all have those students, whether you teach at a Title I or a Title IA or, you know, whatever district you teach at socioeconomically. You have a student or two or more. I had several. I had a class full of kids who suffer from anxiety. Most of them is test anxiety. Standardized tests don't take into consideration the fact that a kid might be a poor test taker because of anxiety. Like you can teach a kid test taking strategies and skills and you can you can you can give them the uh, psychometric breakdown of how a assessment is created and the scoring and you can get really nerdy and technical with assessments. I actually feel like at some point in my career, I'm going to end up working for an assessment company because even as a psychology major in undergrad, the class that um, I loved all of my psychology classes, I can't lie, but the one class that I truly loved, like truly, truly loved on another level was the psychology uh, in assessments. I think that's the title of the course at TSU. I can't remember exactly. But it was a, a beautiful class, and it was so nerdy. Quantitative, qualitative data. Like It wasn't a statistics class, but it, it, it dealt with a lot of the similar. That's when I knew, like, okay, 
I'm bonafide nerd. I mean, I knew it before because you know I'm cool too, and I played sports and always dressed well, so I, I kind of figured like I can get away with not you know identifying with the nerds. Huh? I'm a nerd. I'm a nerd. Like that stuff excites me. Seeing how Tesla's constructed and the different cycles, and that's why I've done so well working with the State Department of Education here in Tennessee on assessments. But yeah, what, what are we actually doing for students? Some of the strategies that I've used to help alleviate um, test anxiety specifically, or anxiety overall, is actually just forming a relationship. Forming a relationship with my students, building that rapport, forming relationships with their parents and family members, building that rapport, giving their family um, things that they can practice with them at home, you know, not a full assessment, not a full practice test, but giving them information on how the standardized tests are scored, different strategies on different games and activities they can do at home that would help them. And also in like bell work, or I call it the do now activity, because I personally follow the deeper model. And so for the do now, you guys already know it's bell work. As soon as a kid comes in, especially if you're teaching middle school or high school, as soon as a kid comes in, they get that bell work or they have their iPad. They know where to find the bell work, whether you're using a, a LMS like Google Classroom or Schoology. Of course, that's going to look different if you're going virtual, right? But whatever that first activity to get their brain working should be something relatively easy. Or it could be something that provokes a lot of curiosity, provokes learning, some type of mystery, something that's going to make them think. And you could be very creative with that with ELA because you can literally take content from all of the other content areas science social studies it can even be a content area that's not offered at your school psychology and i teach middle school i'll bring a psychology prompt in there you know so you can be very creative with that and the purpose of that is is that you just want them thinking you want to you want to expose them to something else and so they're going to second guess themselves because they've never seen a question like this before and that's the other part of doing it too why can't you bring act prompts middle school and high school into the bell work why can't you bring sample test items change the name around, change the format of them around so it looks different. But it's in the same format of what they would see on the actual test. Exposure. And to piggyback on that, my second strategy for helping kids deal with anxiety is repetition. Repetition. And I'm going to add to that, and I'm going to say rigor. Because... A lot of the different things I exposed my, my students to, whether that was using common lid or um, these, these questions I have from Amplify, which is a program that my former school district used to use for a short time period, and I just kept all of the prompts. Um, even PARC, the PARC assessment, there's practice tests, practice questions online. If you've worked with Engage New York before, which is what expedition, expeditionary learning 
EL, that's what everybody's calling it. And, and this is math and English I'm speaking to as far as EL is concerned. You can go back online and you can still access all of those practice tests and some real test items that they have on there that are you know discontinued. They're not going to be using them. They're, they're out of circulation like coins are. So that's just a little, a little advice, but expose your kids to that. And the rigor is so high on those questions. They're so high on the DOK level, depths of knowledge, Webb's depth of knowledge, or Bloom's taxonomy, whatever you prefer, that if the kids consistently are, and they encounter that, and you guide them, and you scaffold, and you prompt, and you give them cues, and you explain it, and you come to a consensus, and you do checks for understanding. If they see those frequently enough, and they start to get better but still struggle dealing with those type of questions and prompts and, and texts, then by the time they get to the standardized test, man, they're going to kill it. They're going to kill it. Now, because of the coronavirus, you know, my kids the past school year didn't get the opportunity to take standardized tests. They didn't get a chance to take the state assessment. But my kids before then, and that was the gifted kids at my previous district, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. Those numbers, that achievement looks great. Does that make me a genius teacher? Nah, I just fo focused on what they were weak in. And I explained it to them. So we see here, back to the documentary, Caroline, she's got a lot of pressure. A lot of it is, or it seems all of it, is self-imposed. If you remember, once we were introduced to Caroline, she has an older sister. And her sister worked super hard to get all types of scholarships. And if you also think back to the episode where we were introduced to Caroline and her family, at one point, things were a little tough. Dad lost his job. Now, he is doing well now. You know, he later recovered. But for a while, they had to be, you know, they had to watch their coins. They had to live on a strict budget. And I'd say, regardless of how much money you have, you should be on a budget anyway. That's the Dave Ramsey in me. Because I've studied Dave Ramsey so much. You should always be on a budget. And I'm speaking to the choir. I'm guilty of this. I have a budget. Sometimes I break it. Then I got to, you know, discipline discipline sometimes we we're asking god and we're praying for things and we're wishing things will happen uh, i don't know who needs to hear this but sometimes that prayer would be answered if you just worked on your discipline if you became more disciplined i know i'm again speaking to the choir i'm talking to myself so caroline's sister got all types of scholarships which i'm sure helped the family would help any family and so it's kind of like Caroline is trying to put herself in that same position where she can have the highest GPA possible. Remember, AP and honors courses um, are, are, are weighted differently. You can literally at Oak Park have a 5.0. Um, so the higher GPA she has, the more likely she's going to get a scholarship. And she's lived through her father not having a job for a while. 
you know, they don't tell us exactly how long that was, but it definitely was over a year. And just watching the footage from the America to Me documentary, which is beautifully shot, they live pretty modestly. Yeah, we know they live in the suburbs. They live in Oak Park, but you know, looking at their house, and you know, I'm from the Midwest. It just looks like a it looks like a house. Now the pricing is a lot different than out west or or out east or in the south, but you know, it's I mean, I don't want to guess, but it's probably a hundred and something thousand dollar house. Which means that in Illinois, outside of Chicago, it, they're probably paying twice that much. But you know, if they were in the South, it'd be a you know a hundred and fifty thousand dollar home, which you know is a good home, but it's not huge. And I'm not house shaming. Uh, my house isn't huge. I'm actually more interested in investing in real estate to uh, make money, you know, off of real estate versus me, you know, acquiring property for myself. I'm more interested in acquiring property and using it as a um, another income tool another income source, income stream. So, you know, just think about that. What do you do for your students for anxiety? What are they dealing with? And this is kind of a theme we can take away from this docu-series. Our students, our kids, our scholars, no matter what you think about them, you know, you're with them 45, 50 minutes, however everything is structured for your school. But you have to realize they're, they're, they're human beings outside of class. They've got problems and conflicts that you'll never know about, that they're embarrassed about. So if a kid's having a bad day, kid's having a bad week, kid's having a bad quarter, that's why that relationship building is important. And I'm going to steal this from the book, The Power of Habit. And I hate reading books just to read them, if that makes sense. Because I'm a bibliophile. I've read a lot. At any moment, I can turn it on and I can also turn it off. And because I've grown older and I want to protect my mind and the information that goes in it, I can't be a part of a book club. I don't want to just read to read. That's where I'm at in my, maybe because I've read so much in my life. I've absorbed so much information. Now I'm very particular. I'm a connoisseur of what information I will allow my brain to embrace. My brain to encounter and process. Seriously, I don't watch music videos. I used to read magazines all the time. Now I do not. And I'll buy a magazine. I've got at least seven magazines that I have not read. I just bought them with the intention of reading them, but I'm going to read them when it's time for me to read them. I'm serious. I want to get into the information and act on the information. I don't want to just read it to read it. I don't just want to read it so I can discuss it with my book club members, cohorts, tweet about it, post an Instagram video about it. No. If I'm reading something, it's so I can use it right then and there. I was reading a psychology book. I read it twice. 
And it was a book about self-sabotage. Why was I reading that? Because I felt like career-wise, business-wise, romantically, so in my personal life, that I was making mistakes and I was basically my own worst enemy. This is before I hired my therapist. Actually reading that book and kind of making a mistake, not kind of, I made a mistake. Made me say, okay, I need more than just the book. I, let me go hire a professional therapist to help me get over this hump. And now I'm over the hump. But I'm not looking back because you can relapse at any moment. So again, to my point is, you know, I like to read books so I can act upon the information I receive from them. So I read The Power Habit actually as a part of a book club. Shout out to that book club that I'm no longer in um, for my own personal reasons they were starting to charge and I'm not spending money on the book club I'm just not unless it's for buying the actual book but from the power of habit they talk about Tony Dungy if you don't know who Tony Dungy is he is a African-American coach I believe he used to play in the NFL at some point he is awesome 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 he's great he's a believer in God he's a true servant leader he practices uh transformational leadership and so he was a coach of uh, the indianapolis Colts, and he was a coach somewhere else before then i can't remember tampa bay but basically when he was with tampa bay and same thing with the indianapolis Colts, his coaching philosophy is and i and i'm gonna make a correlation to what we do as far as pedagogy teach the players how to teach the players how to execute without thinking, without overthinking, without second-guessing themselves. That's all anxiety, specifically test anxiety is. And you see it all the time with some of your brightest students, your brightest scholars. I used to laugh in the two and a half years that I taught the Apex Gifted program. And I love those kids. Like, legit love those kids. But they would be taking a quiz or a practice test or whatever we were doing, some type of assessment. And they would have the correct answer, but they've erased it and chose something else. And so, many times as we went over the assessments, as I met with them one-on-one, -on -one, I would show them, you had the correct answer. Why'd you erase it? Oh, well, Mr. Wilson, I went back and I looked at the question again. I went back and looked at the prompt and I thought that I, I misinterpreted something. No, you had it right the first time. It's nothing wrong with checking your answers, but don't second guess yourself. And that takes, again, repetition. It takes practice. And so Tony Dungy with his players on the defensive side and on the offensive side. So, for example, on the defensive side, if you're a linebacker, you're supposed to pay attention to what the quarterback is doing. Right? Not only what the quarterback is doing, what the running back is doing, what the offensive lineman is doing, their stance. And that's the purpose of why athletes, shout out to Kobe Bryant, one of the best at it, spent a lot of time and a lot of energy and effort 
watching game tape, watching film. So Dungey would teach his defensive players to look for very particular habits in the offensive linemen and the wide receivers and the running back and the opposing quarterback to read body language, process that information, and instinctively react. Instinctive. How many of us are teaching our students, our scholars, our kids, when they get to a multiple choice item, to immediately go through process of elimination after reading the prompt? Or once they read the prompt, they need to highlight or circle key words. Who teaches our kids how to close read a test item? Who's teaching that? Who teaches our kids that in many of these standardized tests, they have, especially with English language arts, they have a purpose-setting statement. And that purpose-setting statement attached to whatever that text is they need to read usually it's going to lead you to the correct answers, the correct analysis of the literature or the informational text. It should be instinctive. So staying in the first first two weeks of school, first week of school, doing icebreakers, and I know it's different for elementary. Typically, I speak from a position of or vantage point of secondary, but you can apply it to elementary. You can apply it. And you can apply it at the university level. You could. But it's it's very, very important that those first couple of weeks of school, instead of doing icebreakers and get to know you and get to know your classmates. and No, especially if you're doing virtual, especially if you're doing distance learning. You're doing remote learning. Those habits in whatever domain you're in, math, science, social studies, whatever, art, definitely ELA. What, I'm just going to throw a number out there. What four or five skills will your, will your students need to use throughout the school year? In the English language arts world, that's citing textual evidence. That's practicing close practicing and executing close reading strategies. Reading the text more than once. Text annotations. Paying attention to the different textual features from the heading to the subheading to to the caption underneath the pictures, paying attention to the visuals. Writing full, complete sentences with proper sentence structure. Reviewing their writing and checking their their grammar, their sentence structure. Actually doing an immediate revision on what they've already wrote before they submit it. Even if it's just a paragraph. Even if it's just a few sentences. And getting into the habits of peer review. I just named 
four or five. I'm sure I missed something that I actually would focus on immediately. Soapstone strategy is great for informational text. What are those four or five things? And start to instill it. And still, you can still do it in a fun, uh, collaborative, engaging, interactive way. You can make it fun. It's the first, first weeks of school. You can make it fun. But it's also introducing them to a skill. Not only a skill, but an expectation. That's how you take care of anxiety. You don't surprise kids. You don't wait until, let's say, uh, at least in Tennessee, testing is in typically April, April, May. April or May. Somewhere around there. School lets out in May. In Tennessee. We're not going to wait until February or March to start teaching very specific skills. Those skills should have been introduced and practiced on before. If anything, you're narrowing down into a small niche and specializing students' deficiencies. That's what you're attacking. Individually, subgroup-wise, whole classroom-wise, that's what you're attacking at that time period to get ready to... But we should be preparing from day one. Don't waste a day. Especially with the coronavirus, especially if you're, you know, if you're doing a hybrid thing, you're going, you know, you're going back at practicing social distancing. Maybe your school and district hired more teachers. Maybe they're moving into separate buildings to get even more space. Even if you're a parent doing homeschooling, whatever the case may be, do not wait. Look at the big picture. It's literally taking an assessment and an expectation and working, what do you call it, backwards design. You see where we're going. We create what's the actual objectives for the overall year and then revert, reverse, plan it out. That's the whole purpose of unit planning. And I know a lot of districts have stripped us from even planning units with the scope and sequence. I'm telling y'all, I'm either getting to curriculum or I'm getting to assessments at a very high level. And I am not traditionally trained as a teacher. Yes, I do have a master's degree in education and instruction and uh, curriculum leadership. Yes, I am in a leadership program at Christian Brothers University. Yes, I have been teaching for 10 years. But I still don't look at me as, you know, I didn't study this stuff in undergrad, which I'm glad I didn't. No disrespect to anyone that has. But it just, it works for me. It works for me. And I still feel like an outsider. And I definitely got something to prove. And I definitely have a chip on my shoulder. I do. Because there's not enough of me going around. There's not enough, enough black and brown going around. Speaking of that, let's talk about the hip-hop club. We are introduced to another African-American educator by the name of Mr. Clark. I just want to say thank you. You actually helped me through a lot. You know, when I was always down, you was always one to teach. I could always go through, like, you know, just go to. Like, you're my mentor. You, you're actually a second father to me. So, actually. Aww. You helped me and encouraged me to find my voice and be a singer. And I am very grateful for that. My mom encouraged me to join a club in high school and help me. And I chose this one because I love dance so much. 
I love music so much. I have like so many friends that support me, like all my homies right here. Yeah. So everybody give it up for the performers tonight. Oh, Mr. Clark. Is this what you want? All right. So Mr. Clark, who's a special education teacher and the club sponsor for the hip hop club, we see him several times uh, throughout this episode. And how big is this school? I'm just thinking because we're being introduced to new educators, and of course, there's a lot of students there. But um, I'm trying to keep account of the African American educators there. Of course, the principal is an African American man. We've seen him before, although he refuses to be uh, interviewed as a part um, as a part of you know the documentary, which is fine. Um, we know one of uh, who is it? Someone had a history teacher that was an African American male. I can't think. I can't think. So yeah, so there was that one, and then we got Mr. Clark. And then we have the behavioral specialist. Um, so I think we're at three, four technically, um, including the principal, um, which is a big school. Huge school, huge population. Oak Park, uh, River Forest serves a lot of kids every single year. So, um, yeah. So I, this scene was very emotional. You can see Mr. Clark get emotional. Um, I remember the first time I had a student, you know, basically let, let me know that I'm like a father figure to them. Usually my students, and even happened this past school year, will let an administrator know, like, Mr. Wilson's my favorite. He's super cool. He's tough on us sometimes. He makes us write a lot. He makes us work a lot. But I love him. You know, he's, he's like a dad to me. He's like a big brother. He's like an uncle. And, you know, just a word of advice for newer educators. Don't try to be your student's friend. It is very true that students learn best from instructors, professors, teachers that they like. That's important. But you still are responsible for holding them responsible and setting high expectations. By setting high expectations and being the instructional leader of your classroom or of your school, it, responsibility is on you to keep those, school, uh, keep those students accountable. It's on you. No one else. So you have to enforce rules and procedures and establish guidelines and hold kids accountable. You have to do it. So that means that they're not going to like you sometimes. That's okay. That's just like a, a, a parent and a, and a kid. Like we've all have, I would say, I could presume, we've all had rough patches with our parents at some point. And it's not because they don't love you or they don't care for you, but the exact opposite. They love and care for you so much and want the best for you. And they're doing so much for you already and have done so much for you that it's their job. It's their obligation to have high expectations and to establish a culture and environment 
along with rules and regulations and procedures and policies to make sure that you live up to that. Kids aren't going to always like you. But at the end of the day, they're going to respect you. They're going to learn from you. And in a weird about way, you just might become one of their favorites. That's never been my concern. I'm actually shocked when kids tell me I'm their favorite. And I can tell from watching this episode with Mr. Clark, he's not focused on himself. He's focused on the kids. He even grabbed the mic and said toward the end there, you know, this is about them. Like, this isn't about me. He got emotional when he heard those words from his students. And when you see him work with his students, he's building, he's built rapport with them. He's built a relationship with them. They trust him. They trust him. I don't know if there's a more valuable um, commodity in society than trust. Like literally, it's how the entire financial market works. It's how the stock market works. It's based on trust. Do we trust this company or that company? Do we trust Apple? We do. That's why it's over 300 and however many dollars per share to purchase. Because we trust them. I'm using Apple products right now. Like right now, I use Apple products for my business. I use Apple products to create content, whether that's a book or the podcast. I use Apple products to create my business, to communicate with customers, with my listeners, to communicate with my family, to record my most intimate moments. I've got notes, whether they're poems or they're just notes to myself or my thoughts or some free prose or, 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 or rhymes, whatever it is, that I will never show to another human being. That's between me and my Apple product because I trust them. Trust. These kids trust them. So I think as an educator, especially if you're brand spanking new, or you've been in it for less than, uh, let's, let's say, four or five years. You've got to continue to build trust with your students, with the parents, with your administrators, with all stakeholders. The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in your actions. Are you consistent? Are you punctual? You don't have to be best friends with your co-workers and colleagues, but are you at least cordial? Can you say hi? Can you say bye? Is your, your email communication always professional? Can you tell a joke? Can you laugh? Can you reveal something about yourself? Not everything. You know, you got some people, they have diarrhea at the mouth. They just talk, 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 talk. You don't have to be that way. So, Mr. Clark. Emotional scene. And it also proves with this hip-hop club, the power of hip-hop. That's another thing to take away from this docuseries. It's another thing to take away from it. The power of hip-hop. The power of extracurricular activities. Right? 
let me transition into uh, our last topic. And I'm not going to play an audio on this one because I don't feel like it's important. But let's talk about Tierra. We haven't talked about Tierra in a while. So for this, for this section of the podcast, we're going to call it Connecting to Low Performers or Underachievers. And you have them in every class. And yes, in the two and a half years of me teaching gifted Apex, those gifted and talented students, yes, I had students who were severe underachievers. I had an eighth grade student who I taught for seventh and eighth grade who absolutely hated school. He loved the social components of it, but as far as actually learning, hated it. Here's the thing. He's intellectually gifted. He has a higher IQ than roughly 90% of his peers across the state. Told me to my face. He hated school. So it took not one, not two, not three. I lost count. Multiple conversations. And me trying me failing, me trying again, me failing again, me trying again. It took that many times, times a hundred, in order for me to muster effort from him. Because although he's naturally gifted, he's innately intelligent. He was an F student in multiple classes because he refused to do the work. And when he wanted to turn it on, he could take an assessment, he could take a quiz, and he can get a 95%. 95% correct. Do you know how frustrating that is as an educator? And I, I just, our conversations, they transform, they change. And it was like, do you know the type of blessing you have on your life? Do you know how many people would kill to have your mind? Do you know how great you are? Do you know how great you could be? And so when you have kids like that, you've got to, again, build up rapport, build a relationship, build up trust. And you have to find a way. And you're not going to get it the first time. It'd be great if you did. And you might not get the second or third or fourth or tenth or eleventh or twentieth time, but you keep working at it. That's what we are. We, we, we don't give up. Our work ethic is uncanny. In order to be an effective, highly effective black and brown educator, we don't give up on our kids. We don't. And so we see in this footage for this episode eight, nobody can hold you down. We see Tierra. We love Tierra. She's a cheerleader. She's in choir. She loves the social aspects of school. She's living with her sister and her nephew, Terrence. And Terrence's little brother in a small house, small apartment, small house. How do you guys connect with students who don't try, that are not given their all? How do you connect with family members who are not your students, who don't give their all? Administrators, how do you connect with educators with multiple degrees and credentials who are not giving their all? 
I've had colleagues very, very talented at what they do. Tell me to their to my face that they're, for lack of better words, half assing it. Maybe they were pissed at the administration, the district, whatever the case might be. They told me I am going to do the bare minimum this school year because I don't like these kids. I don't like this assistant principal. I don't like whatever the situation might be. And I'm just looking at them like, must be nice. Now, I won't lie. I might have a day or, or typically a class where I'm like, you know what? Y'all right in the day because I, I got a headache. I'm just, I'm just being honest. Are we being honest or what? Can we be candid? Can we be real with each other? You have those moments. You're a human being. But as long as you're consistent and as long as you're doing what you're supposed to be doing in a classroom on a consistent basis and your students are achievement, uh, achieving, then you're fine. Okay? I'm just being honest. We have those moments. We have those short periods. Like me in the morning with no coffee, no caffeine, no tea? What? Man. I pray for I pray for my first period classes. If Mr. Wilson doesn't have time to get coffee or tea or make it at home or whatever the case might be, and there's no substitute, I can't grab some orange juice or something. It's going to be a rough morning for everyone involved. I'm just being honest. But I've had cohorts, I've had colleagues, peers, tell me that they were going to take the entire year off. They were showing up to work every single day. They were collecting a direct deposit. They were collecting a check, and that's about it. Not to say they weren't teaching, but when they knew they should provide uh, intervention, they didn't. When they knew they should enrich, they didn't. When they know that they should be focusing on data and certain subgroups and collaborating in PLCs, they made it look good, but they didn't. And I'll be honest, there are some educators so talented enough that they can do that and still get good results. And I'm going to continue to be honest with you guys and say I know those standards and I'm speaking specifically 6th grade, 7th grade, 8th grade, English language arts so well. And I've got strategies built in that I teach my kids year after year after year after year. That if I wanted to coast a year, I could. But I won't. Because if I get to that point, then I need to go over into instructional technology, um, IT in general. Um, I need to pursue my career as an author full time. I mean, I've got a lot of different talents. I've also, I also have a whole other degree in technical writing that I never fully use. I use it in some capacity, but I don't use it in a traditional sense. And I'm pretty sure I can make more in technical writing, especially owning my own business, than I do in education. But I'm not driven by a check. I get my checks, but I'm driven by purpose. So how do you connect with students, with scholars, administrators? How do you connect with educators? Everyone, how do you connect with people, family members, loved ones, friends, significant others who are not trying? If the coronavirus didn't teach us anything, it taught us 
that life is extremely short. Nothing is promised. We could die tomorrow. We can catch the COVID, have some underlying disposition we were not fully aware of, some disposition that's been in our family for ages, African Americans, Hispanics, cholesterol, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, diabetes, boom, you catch this thing, you die. Or you get so sick that you have long-term symptoms that make you wish you died or eventually lead to your death, like cardiovascular issues. Life is too short. So I refuse to coast through a school year. Refuse to. And no matter how great my students did, I always reflect at the end of every year. And I think, what could I have done better? To be honest, you should be reflecting after each lesson. I make adjustments. If you teach the same grade level, and your first period class didn't do so well, or got confused, or had more questions than you anticipated on certain activities, certain instruction you gave them, certain concepts they were supposed to acquire, the objectives they were supposed to master. Make adjustments on the fly. It's a part, it's the reason why educators, including classroom teachers, should never be replaced by technology and programs. Software can't do what a highly effective educator can do. And because of the pandemic, because of future pandemics, because this isn't it, it's important that this community realizes that and we continue to make ourselves remarkable and distinct in what we do. Because education is big business. Right now, you know, a lot of districts are moving to the remote learning, distance learning, virtual learning for the foreseeable future because of the pandemic and a potential second wave. You don't want to be replaced by Pearson or some company, some assessment company, some uh, uh, assessment tycoon giant that's going to all of a sudden create remote learning programs and the kids go through the program and they click here and they listen to this and they click there and they highlight this and they click there and if they score a certain percentage then the software is going to send them through an intervention process or if they do really well they're going to get a badge or a certificate they might get a few minutes of playing some game built in if you've ever use MobyMax before. It's kind of how MobyMax is set up. It's, it's really independent learning. It's good for tutoring. It's good for, um, for differentiation. But what if someone took a MobyMax and made it better? Like Pearson. That's a billion dollar company. Actually, billions. Excuse me. And I'm not looking on my phone. I'm not even checking, you know, what the actual number is. But if we think about market capitalization, right? 
You know, I'm on my stock stuff. We talk about market capitalization. Pearson is huge. Huge. McGraw-Hill, huge. They already create, uh, create curriculum. And they are creating curriculum to help educators with the distant, remote, virtual learning. Who's to say they won't create programs in the future to completely take out teachers for the most part? Some subjects you just can't, you just can't do that. Are you going to be replaced by a computer? I'm not. I'm not because no one can do what I do in the classroom. I know my value, I know my worth, and I won't settle for less. I just won't. That's me. And you know what? I'm going to do an episode. I'm going to do an episode in the near future called Know Your Worth. And we're going we're gonna to talk about it. We're going to talk about it. But back to the documentary. How do you connect to those students who don't try? Chemistry teacher... Tierra's chemistry teacher, he had to tell the class several times, can you please be quiet? Can you please put your phone away? He had to stop his instruction several times to keep students on task. We've all been there. And I'll be honest, he seems a bit passive. And I know it's not the camera's job to show his rules, and but he doesn't, whatever rules have been established, don't seem like they're being enforced. And yes, I know I teach middle school, he teaches high school, but I taught high school for three years and my classes were not off the chain. And anytime I felt like my classes got off the chain, I immediately corrected that. Not only did I immediately correct that, but I came back the very next day or if it happened on like a Friday, because you know kids act wild on a Friday. I came back Monday, excuse me, with a whole new seating chart and additional procedures and rules and consequences. Positive and negative. I don't play. I don't play. I didn't go through all the schooling I went through, which technically I should have already had my doctorate degree. But I don't go through all the schooling that I've went through and all the the conferences and professional training. Like I have written books. I'm not in there to play with other people's kids. I'm not. So this chemistry teacher, he's doing just that. He's playing with other people's kids. Why am I stopping instruction for you to put your cell phone away? Cell phone shouldn't be out. Unless we're using that cell phone as a part of the learning process. Because the cell phone can be valuable. That's actually what my dissertation would have been on. Is the impact of the benefits of using a cell phone in a classroom. And I know everyone's got one-on-one devices, laptops, tablets, iPads, whatever. Same thing. The benefits of using instructional technology in a classroom for students. The benefits of a one-to-one program. And by one-to-one, I mean each student has a, a learning device, a piece of technology to help them learn. He's playing. I don't play with kids. And he made a uh, comment that his AP students, his honor students, he connects with them easier than he does with his standard classes. I've heard that a million times in my 10 years in this business. And it is a business. A million times. Talented, gifted, educator, at least content-wise, 
as a content specialist, as a content expert, maybe doesn't have the best classroom management and it really shows in a standard class versus an AP class. Because AP class, most of those students, intrinsically motivated. Sometimes extrinsically motivated and that extrinsic, extrinsic uh, motivation is rewarded by their parents or family members. So if they bring home all A's, you know, they get $1,000. They get a new video game system. They get those shoes they wanted. They get to take a trip during fall or spring break that they wanted. And he says he can relate to those kids in AP and honors because that's the type of kid he was. Intrinsically motivated, focused on school, sitting at the front. And let me reveal this. I'm the same way. Very intrinsically motivated, love school, love learning. I take everything serious. Even they, even even during, what is it, PDs, faculty meetings, I sit at the front every time. Some of my peers, my colleagues, and this is no disrespect or diss to them, those especially that are African American, they sit in the back. I don't sit in the back for nobody. I sit in the front. I don't care if I'm best friends with, and this has been the case in my career, I have really close friends that I've worked with. I have really close friends who are in this business of education. They sit in the back. They group up. They click up. They got their cell phones out. They're making jokes. They're texting each other. I sit in the front. Whether I feel like it or not. Whether I want to be at the meeting or the PLC or whatever it is or not. I sit at the front. Intentionally. And again. A theme that we take away from this this show. Tierra's going through something. She went from seeing her mom and dad who were married, living in a nice sized house, living a good lifestyle, to everything crumbling apart, and now she lives in a small living, uh, in a small residence with her sister and her two sister's sons. And one of those sons is special needs. He has special needs. We never see Tierra and Terrence together at school. Ever. And I know they're in different grades, but still. We don't see them walking home together. We don't see her supporting him in any capacity. We don't see him at one of her cheerleading events or practice. We don't see any of that. That's an issue that needs to be dug into a bit more. Why isn't their relationship closer? Does she feel a certain way towards him because he's special needs? Do kids make fun of him there? He seems like a cool laid back guy, but I mean, high school is high school. High school is cruel. It can be. And everything we heard about Oak Park over these last eight episodes reveals that there's a lot of, you know, racism and things said that shouldn't be said. And we've discussed it on this show. So, I'm just going to leave you guys with that. How do you connect to those students who don't give their all or even try? Hit me up on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Don't forget BlackScholarsClothing.com. Have a special sale going on. 20% off. Use promo code PRAY. If you need me, you know how to reach me. Mamba out.
I started this podcast in the summer of 2018, and although much in my life has changed since that summer, the one thing that's been very consistent is the love and support I get from this podcast, from this community around this podcast, which is for scholars and educators. And as scholars and educators, we have been taught and trained how to look at information that's been gathered in the past and how to use it to influence our future. Similarly, I want to bring more to the table. I want to bring more to the culture. I want this podcast to be bigger than the podcast. And in order to make that happen, I've got to sell you some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm selling you the Black Scholars Clothing. Black Scholars Clothing, hoodies, sweaters, t-shirts, tank tops, hats, masks. We got them all. Please go to blackscholarsclothing.com, blackscholarsclothing.com. Use the promo code SCHOLARS, take 15% off, get fresh, and thank you for listening to the Black Scholars Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Black Scholars Podcast. For more information, go to blackscholarspublishing.com. You just gotta go. You will never know what you could ever be. If you never try, you will never see. Stayed in Africa, we ain't never leave. So it was no slave in our history. One no slave ships, one no misery.